0: I very much see myself in the role when I'm performing live of being side by side with the audience. It's you, you can present in different ways. You can sometimes go, "I've got this amazing sort of trick. Look at this! Isn't and marvel at it." And the performer sometimes gets hidden uh, behind this marvelous trick. Other times, you can have a really strong performance personality that you you obscure obscure the magic and what i try and do in in my shows is here's something amazing let me show it to you and let's explore it together so you're you're not in front of the audience you're not blocking the trick you're there almost sat next to them go let's let's play with it together
1: you're listening to the mystery behind magic podcast the podcast for ever-learning magicians. Brought to you by Chinat Kish and Robbie Stevens.
2: You can get years and years of experience in just under one hour and listen to exclusive conversations with some of the best minds in magic. In today's episode, we spoke with Matt Pritchard about his TED Talk, being a curator of wonder and also his creative process and how he goes about finding inspiration for his ideas how how did you find the episode Jeanette?
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed it and Matt has I think a different perspective than most of us magicians do because he has he he sort of mixes science uh, physics and magic together so i think that creates a really different perspective and and i just really enjoyed it sort of talking about how uh, he also uses magic um when talking about physics and when doing magic he sometimes uses physics um and i mean if you've seen his instagram uh, it's just incredible we'll have it linked in the description below and his twitter as well i mean it's just insane um but yeah i really really enjoyed this episode and i hope you will too what did you think about uh, the episode, Robbie?
2: Yeah, I was really grateful to hear from him on what goes into wonder.
1: Yeah, that was definitely really interesting, and he sp- sort of speaks about the sequence uh, near the end of the episode, which which was super super interesting. And just before we dive into this week's episode, if you haven't signed up to our once per fortnight newsletter, you can do so on themysterybehindmagic.co.uk forward slash newsletter. And if you want to join the community, you can do so by searching The Mystery Behind Magic on Facebook. We'll have both of those linked in the show notes below. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome to The Mystery Behind Magic. I'm
2: Matthew, And I am Rory Stevens and in today's episode
1: we are joined with Matt Pritchard. How are you, Matt?
0: I'm good, thanks. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Thank you so much for coming on and joining us. Now, let's go right back to the beginning. Where did your love or your ambition of magic begin?
0: So I think I'm very much that stereotypical magician who, as a kid at 10, got a magic book for Christmas and started learning a few tricks. And I was terrible, like most magicians start off. And I used to show and bore my friends with tricks and uh, they basically told me to stop and I just kept on going to the point where they said, oh, you're okay. And then later on in life, they started actually encouraging me, inviting me and then paying me to do magic. So I think for me... The first love for magic is, I just love the thinking behind it, and I love learning about the psychology. I love the the mathematics. I love uh, the, the psychology. I love the craft work as well of building your own props. And I think it was much later in life that the performance side of magic I really started to enjoy as well.
2: So, how come? How would you say your kind of passion? For magic change did it ever like the reasons for why you decided to get into magic then kind of change i guess i'll give an example of kind of how it might be what i'm thinking of and so when i was like 10 i think the reason why i got into it was this kind of wonder and then it, that changed as i grew up into kind of then seeing kind of the idea of just having independence and being able to show people tricks and then have independence from magic by being able to kind of create a source of income and kind of, uh, I guess that'll change as well as I kind of grow older. Does that sort of make sense?
0: It does. I think for me, my interest was always how things worked and and the figuring out of things i actually weirdly uh, after i first got into magic with a few sort of card tricks the thing that really captivated me was escapology and uh the life of houdini and i, I read as much about that as i could and in fact when i was 14 for christmas i got a straitjacket and i was like it's the weirdest uh, christmas present a teenager probably gets is a straitjacket and what i realized was uh, I, I just always assumed straight jackets, one size fits all and you just tighten the belts. And it just looked enormous on me. It's like I was wearing this big tent and I think the real art to escapology is making the audience believe that you're truly tied up and there's no possible escape. And people looked at this scrawny little kid in a big tent of a straight and thought that's just that wasn't that impossible. It wasn't that impressive. And I soon my interest in magic soon moved into uh other worlds and i think I, a lot of my teenage years was just exploring uh, manipulation card tricks mentalism all the different branches of magic and i think when you start off you have to do that as well i think you you gain a lot of experience by exploring the different areas and experimenting with different styles as well
1: so how come you asked for a straight jacket for christmas because it definitely hasn't been on my Christmas list, and uh, has it not? No, no, yeah. Funnily enough,
0: <laughs> I think I. Well, I first got into escapology when uh, some friends at school had bought. <coughs> Excuse me. Listen, we'll some... start that again, shall we? I first got into escapology when some friends at school. Uh, got from the local shop like some handcuffs really cheap handcuffs and they used to have fun just chaining friends to radiators and running off and thinking it's hilarious and what I discovered was with a little pin you could pick the lock in it and so once you can pick a lock then you start thinking well what could I do with that and it turned into a a mini performance and then when you go down that route, you realize you can't just buy escapology supplies from any shop. There's there's only really two places you can get that type of stuff. And one, as a 14-year-old kid, you're not allowed into. And the other one was a magic shop. So uh, I started sort of doing that. And as Houdini was my hero at the time, and he was almost most famous for that straitjacket escape, I thought, well, let's let's get one. And so Christmas was uh, a year for that.
1: And then how did that progress on to other things or did it just snatch did you naturally just sort of your, um, maybe your love for certain types of magic fade away and you gained interest in other things or how did that sort of transitions move?
0: I think there's two things really. I think the first thing was just sheer practical, uh, considerations when you're performing a lot of magic at school you can't take in straight jackets and handcuffs and stuff like that and so you just ended up taking small tricks that you could fit in your rucksack so I ended up doing lots of uh, card tricks and also I, I love collecting tenyo, so I used to bring in a lot of tenure magic tricks as well so that that was one part of it and I think the other part was almost realizing what you're good at and what you're not good at and I was never good at sort of hand eye coordination. So, sleight of hand has always been a challenge for me. Um, I'm not particularly dexterous, and I didn't have the patience really to become better at doing those things. And so, it naturally skewed to some of the areas. Of magic that I was better suited to. So for me, mathematics was uh, something that I found relatively easy to do. I found I could rely on my memory. And so a lot of the magic I ended up doing was more mentalism based because that's a skill set within I felt comfortable with. And I think when you perform, if you're doing something you feel comfortable with, you can devote most of your thinking towards giving a good performance rather than thinking about the technical side of things.
2: So when did you decide to do physics at university?
0: So I've always had an interest in science and it was one of those subjects that I was okay at doing. To be honest, it was real, really an accident. I went to university open days and the school booked me on the wrong course. So I was meant to be doing engineering and I got to one of the universities and the name said, Matt, for going to go into physics department. I was like going, no, I don't want to do physics. And it says, no, the name's on the list. You're going to physics. And it's just like stupid university. Code. It's like this kid who's going to apply there and it said, no, you have to do some random other course. And so I ended up having to do this whole open day looking around the physics department, which I realized actually I quite enjoy physics. And so uh, it was the subject that's probably most attuned to as a student and then ended up visiting a few other university physics departments and enjoyed that so it was very much a quirk of circumstance and just a subject that I found I enjoyed and was was quite good at it's it a very boring choice to be honest
2: and then when when did you kind of have that re- realization that you could combine magic with
0: the physics? Much, much later in life. So although some of the tricks I was doing had some science behind it, it wasn't until when I finished my uh, academic life, I was doing a a postgrad in physics and the things I loved the most about it was doing the the science communication. So we would go out and do science on the street, we would have uh, school groups coming in and would do demonstrations to them. I loved giving presentations and designing posters to communicate how my science worked. And so that was that's the thing I most enjoyed, the, the idea of taking something complex and conveying it in a simple and creative way. And so when I f- left university, I ended up working for a science museum in Birmingham called Think Tank. On their education team which was doing workshops in the museum but also visiting schools doing uh, science shows and workshops and it was at that point during think tank i've been performing magic on the side i've been doing a bit of fringe festival work that i had the opportunity to do a science of magic workshop and at that point i thought this these two subjects work really well together and that started the ball rolling. And now it's it's what I do for a living, mainly.
1: Oh, wow. Well, yeah. And how does it sort of... Because I'm not that into um, physics. And how did you find that they did link? Because I don't... Did you just run into it? Or was it accidental? Or was it just a realisation?
0: I think for me both magic and and science is uh, they're both interested in wonder they're both interested in exploring the world exploring the limits of the world and pushing back boundaries i think that the main difference is when you look at the world through the eyes of a scientist you're trying to understand it and then you're trying to share it with the rest of your world Uh, magicians in one sense are quite selfish we try and understand how things work, and then we keep that to ourselves. And we don't reveal exactly what we're doing. But at the same time, we still want to try and convey that the wonder, the surprise, the beauty, the uh, new possibilities that the world, world can have. And so when I do my work now, it's uh, it's not that I'm doing science, it's not that I'm doing magic, I'm trying to uh, bring my audience to to experience wonder. And I might do that through showing them something fascinating from the scientific world, or I might do it as a, a magic effect. And quite often the two fuse together and it's sometimes hard to tell is what I'm doing, is it magic, is it science? Because sometimes the tricks have a bit of science behind it and sometimes the science I'm doing seems quite magical as well.
1: Did you use magic in your workshops or your presentations to sort of teach people about physics?
0: Initially, no. And then now that I'm doing a lot of the things on my own, I do use magic a lot. I, I, I tend to call them science tricks because they're they're not not your sort of conventional magic trick. they. there's something that appears counterintuitive and surprising. And so it has those elements of a magic trick, but the, uh, the secret is there's just a force or a principle in science just used in a, in a different way. And then I feel it's, it's okay to talk about what's going on because uh, when, you, uh, when you understand what's going on underneath the surface, I think it's just as amazing. I think sometimes if you were to explain a standard magic trick and you say, this is how the trick works, you you totally rob that uh, sense of wonder from that, which is why I think so many magicians are so against exposing how magic tricks work.
2: How has having a physics degree specifically helped when going about creating magic? Because obviously there's like the scientific method. Has that been in any way kind of when you're thinking of kind of a magic problem, you then use the kind of the thought processes to creating a magic trick?
0: I think there is some elements to drawing from my my science background. I think some of that is one of the wonderful things with physics is it often asks you to think about big questions about the beginning of time or infinities and impossibilities. And a lot of the uh, the concepts you think about with the big like cosmology, the study of the universe are quite amazing and quite uh, philosophically deep subjects. And I think that that then feeds into uh, what what you'd create as a magician. But I also think because my, my PhD was an experimental PhD, I was doing a lot of stuff with my hands and actually wrestling with the nitty gritty of trying to get something to work and facing that constant brick wall of things not working and not working and often months on end of constant little minor failures. I think that has given me sometimes some actual physical tools and techniques to use, but also often it's that that mindset of just keeping on going and trying to chip away at something and, and and not being okay with walking away from something but you can get that from studying other subjects as well I think it's that sort of that researcher you're on the cutting edge of something new but not sure if what's on the other side is worth pursuing or not
1: So do you think that's an a key or important skill for people to have is just to keep going and maybe have a little bit more patience than they usually would?
0: I think so. And I think that's something that definitely as I've got older, I've become more comfortable with. I I'm naturally quite an impatient person in terms of wanting things to work and making quick decisions. And so I've got better at taking my time and, and not trying to rush things and not trying to give up straight away. But I think it also when you've has, had past breakthroughs, when things have worked, when you felt like giving up and you kept on going, that that can give you confidence to keep on going. And I think it's even just in the last 18 months with lockdown of not having my usual avenues for going and working and performing, I've been doing a lot more creating at home and constantly been thinking about things. And that's, uh, over the course of a week or a month. And then you see the outcome of that after that period, it's, it's, it's boosting my confidence in my own creative abilities as well.
1: Mm. That sort of leads on nicely to like a side thing I want to talk about, um, so you're the science magician on instagram if um, some of our, some of our listeners may not have seen your work before and the things you do on there like robbie and i were talking before are just incredible one of the things they're like i was like wow that's what well, probably my favorite thing on there is um the elephant vanishing with the uh, train train tracks and i'm sure a lot of magicians have said that as well and and like that is just incredible and All of the things you post on there, I think are just really incredible mixing science with magic and it shows both, you know, your love for science and your love for magic as well. Where did that all sort of come from?
0: First of all, thank you. I've, I've had great fun creating these. I. Part of it, like I said, came from lockdown and not having the, the opportunity to perform and then realized I can present in a different way through social media, through Twitter and Instagram and have uh, conversations with my audience off the back of it and uh, to meet new audiences. What you really see on my, say for instance, my Instagram feed is just, it's a journal of what I'm interested in. And what I'm currently tinkering with and exploring, and what you'll find is there's recurring themes. A lot of it is to do with invisibility or making things camouflage. And because the likes of Instagram is a very visual medium, a vanish or an appearance or a transformation is really what gets the most uh, impact, I think. And so I've just been sort of playing with that. And each time I've done something, I've got feedback from people, from friends, and also new friends who I've met through doing it. And they've said, Matt, it's great, but I spotted something. There was a little shadow there or there's something else. And I look at it and go, I didn't know that. I didn't spot, I didn't notice that myself. And so the next time... I've got that in the bank of my head and go I'm going to make sure that mistake doesn't happen again and it becomes a bit of a cat and mouse game of if you look back 18 months you'll see some really badly made crafts I've uh, I've learned a lot sort of technically of how to make things and film things and so much of that has been getting that instant feedback from the audience and of learning from that and developing and I think that's one of the real keys for why it's been such a, a fruitful period is that that rapid feedback and being being vulnerable and saying, actually, here's an idea. It's not quite there yet. What do you think? What could be better? And taking those suggestions on board and and improving.
1: In
2: regards to like you mentioning feedback, is there any specific way that you decide to kind of Note the, the different things that you should do differently next time. Or is it more, is it less ordered and just when you're then next creating a trick, something from a previous trick that you did wrong might come to mind? Or are you doing it in any processed way where you're writing down, okay, next time I've got to do this and this. Or is it just more kind of free-flowing?
0: I think definitely more free-flowing. I I do have a notepad, and most of the things in my notepad is just ideas for, wouldn't it be cool to be able to do this? And I, I jot it down, or here's a nice presentation. I've no idea how to do it. And then it just sits in my notepad for weeks, months, uh, sometimes years. And then I sort of say, oh, I could use that. Or when you're trying to explore a method to do one trick you realize this isn't going to work for this trick but i think it might work for something in the future so you you make a, almost a mental note of going oh, i could use that in again and i think as you you grow these little tips and techniques and and so much of what i've learned hasn't been so much magical methods it's more been how to uh, how to make a really invisible let's say trapdoor or how to uh, hide shadows. It's those, uh, it's, I, I joke often that it's like a grand illusion on a, a micro scale. So what I'm really doing is I'm in my office filming these uh, tricks. I'm rediscovering what stage illusionists must have known like 200 years ago. And I'm just learning for the first time myself how to do it and how to capture it on this, on this small scale. But we're we're talking about just before we hit the record button that you you noticed my office and it's full of boxes and things. And so much of my space around me is filled both with things that make me go, wow, objects of wonder, things that inspire me and I will take them down and play with them. But also I've got boxes of failures, things that haven't quite worked. And it, it pains me to throw them out because I put time into it. And it also pains me to think, well, maybe if I had a little insight, I could get this to work. And so sometimes what I'll do is I'll get one of these boxes of failures down, dump it on the desk and have another attempt at trying to solve those problems. And, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But uh, it's, uh, I think it's we shouldn't be scared of making mistakes and failing. It's, it's what we do with them afterwards.
1: What do you think the biggest challenges are of making, you know, almost grand illusions, you know, something small that could, you know, fit on your desk? I think most of your times in filming that, or like, what's the biggest challenge you've run into and not necessarily thought it would be a challenge?
0: I think often I'm surprised by how a video is received. I will sometimes spend weeks working on something and it'll get an okay response. And then other times I'll do something and it gets an amazing response. And I've been like looking at it and going, what is it about it? And then realize that in essence, what's made the success is I've, I've created a mini story. So it's not just here's something cool. Here's a very short story in the space. It might just have been in 15 seconds. And I think what I'm doing now especially is, is thinking about that that story. How can I visually tell in an interesting way to grab viewers in rather than just a nice little trick? And so the, the one I've done recently, which uh, took far, far too long, was uh, a recreation of David Copperfield's Bermuda Triangle illusion, where Richard Young had uh, challenged me to say, oh, why didn't you take one of David Copperfield's iconic illusions and recreate it in miniature, but also reimagine it? So don't do it in a way that David did it, but do it in a way that should fool everyone, including uh, David himself, if you watch back his own illusion that's a, that's a massive challenge i, saw, I first go yeah i'm up for that and then risk realized this is so hard it's it's so hard uh, not just working with water not just angles and everything else but also taking another person's creation another person's story and then trying to make put your own stamp on it as well and i i, I kept on hitting my head against the wall going i I want to take it in a different direction, but I can't because I have to come back to the story that had already been told and I had to reimagine.
2: What do you do when you're stuck on something like that? Because that seems like just you kind of presenting that grand vision, I would have no clue where at all to begin. And I guess, obviously, reading and kind of being more knowledgeable will help. But when you do reach a point where, you don't know what to do are there any specific things which then you might try to overcome that obstacle
0: i think sometimes it's good just to take a step back and just put be be willing to just put something on the shelf and i think that's one of the nice things with lockdown i haven't had the pressure to deliver on a lot of the illusions they they turn up when they turn up and I'm not having to fit to a schedule, I am i don't have that Friday deadline to post a video. And if something, something works, great. If it doesn't, it might just sit on the shelf and I might come back to it. And I'll often go for something completely different. I think when I'm feeling a bit demoralized with something not quite working, I'll, I'll go for some easy wins, do something that I find enjoyable, that I enjoy playing with, and I can get a... A nice result within a few hours rather than a few weeks so that that's one way another way is just to uh, go to shops where they're full of random stuff so my my current favorite shop is uh, selco builders warehouse where there's one just down the road and i'm not a builder i don't know what stuff what equipment they use but I, i go up and down the shelves and go oh that's cool there's a a pipe there's a there's a connector or there's a gadget or something like that I wonder what I could do with that I used to love going around things like Poundland and Wilco's and just up and down the shelves looking for inspiration forget about forget about your magic shops there's uh, there's so much magic just in Poundland and it's so much cheaper as well
2: do you have any particular websites that you might want to visit to kind of then get inspiration instead of having to go out physically into stores
0: do you know what? I, I don't. I I deliberately try and avoid being inspired from magic. And, and that, I realise, for lots of you getting into magic or just being uh, uh, the first few rungs in your journey into magic, uh, that's maybe not the best advice for you. But for me, having quite a few years of experience and got that bank of knowledge of techniques – I will look to completely different fields for inspiration. And so I, I love paper engineering on pop-up books. So I'll I'll look to that for inspiration and go, actually, how could I take something from this and turn it into a magic trick? I'll uh, look in recreational maths books and go, could that be a trick? And so that's where my inspiration mainly comes from, from outside of magic. And And part of that is because I want to be doing things that's original. And I think if you get your inspiration from other magicians' work, then you often, even if it's subconsciously, you you often end up copying what they're doing. And so moving outside of magic, just by sometimes changing one thing over, you've got something brand new.
2: With social media, what are your main goals for posting videos? Because I know there are obviously going to be loads of Instagram magicians whose main goal to grow their followers. Is that the same for you? Is it more just for the magic community?
0: Do you know what? I've got no goals at all. With I'm not very good in terms of strategy for social media. To be honest, one of my goals is just to try and understand what makes a video successful. Not because I want the success of the video, but it just feels like this one big mystery: how you can post one video one day it does well, you can post another one which you think's better the next day, and it just dies a death. And so, I just it frustrates me that I don't understand how the algorithms for uh, Instagram and stuff like that work. And so, that's to be honest, that's a big motivation for doing it: of just trying to get my head around it i think uh, i'll never will i think uh, so many other people are trying to understand it i think what i've loved though of posting videos is just i've had people contact me who as as a teenage magician they were my heroes i'd got their books on the shelves and then suddenly they're messaging me and say oh i just saw your vanishing elephant loved it don't know how it works and you just go wow wow i'm sort of like i'm getting to chat with uh, so and so who's like i've got three books of yours on the shelf and then it's that's a goal in itself just to open up conversations with with other people and and like i said earlier uh, some of it was just i i lost the ability to perform in person for many months Uh, virtual shows hadn't really taken off at that point and so the, the creative part of me, the one who wants to be out there, uh, performing, I can do that as a secondary way through some of the videos and the images I've been making.
1: You said you don't really have a goal for social media, but where do you sort of see yourself or, or what do you see yourself doing with it? Just the same sort of content or are you looking to move into maybe another style or something?
0: Good question. I I don't know is the answer to that. I I have you'll you'll notice looking through things like my Instagram feed, the style has changed a little bit. Uh, like the Bermuda Triangle. I know it's was reimagining David Copperfield's illusion, but if you, I was playing around with soundscapes and the sound for that, I found quite fascinating of creating this environment because often what I've done previously has been almost cartoon like in terms of using retro lego and hand drawn pictures and then to have a video which has still got that that retro look but quite a ominous undertone to it uh, was a was a fascinating juxtaposition and so that's something I'd like to explore more of using sound in what I'm doing. And, and to be honest, one of the main motivations for creating a lot of these videos was just a way for me to learn how to film things, how to light a scene, how to use video editing software and all the rest. And so it's been a way of me learning on the job.
1: What so with like, um, recording the videos setting it up with lighting for example and then editing it which part of that did you find the most of challenging and how did you overcome that
0: i think to be honest the uh, i joke with the optical illusions shadows are my nemesis and so i've learned a lot about lighting and i'm still learning how to light a scene and uh Even's little comments. There was a, a guy who I met again on uh, uh, Instagram who was a film camera operator, and he says, "Have you got like something white you can bounce the light off?" And it's like, "Well, I've got white ceiling. It's perfect." And so then, I, rather than shining the light directly on the scenes, I bounce it off the ceiling, and it's just amazing what you can do with stuff. And I wouldn't know that because I'm just having to discover everything afresh myself without having the training. I think the one thing that's been the most challenging and the thing I'm still very much learning is, is the workflow of going from how do you record things to then edit it? Because I'm terrible at uh, uh, keeping track of files. I just, my, my, I do most of the filming on my, my iPhone. And and so my phone is just full of videos. And then I sort of upload all the videos to my computer. Then my computer's full of videos and 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 I'm not doing it as efficiently as I should. And so that, that's at the moment is the real challenge of how do I uh, carefully think through even before I hit the record button on the videos, how what scenes do I want to shoot and then how am I going to turn that into the final final video?
2: What illusions when because obviously there's been a main focus on posting videos on social media do you do any science-based similar illusions in real person that you like to work
0: yeah so so yes and no is the answer i think being able to perform through a lens has offered me an opportunity method wise that i wouldn't have had in person and that's, that's almost the, the opportunity that stage performers have. Stage performers can often, if you're in a theatre, you can control the lighting. You can control, you can control to a certain extent the angles that the, the audience is looking at. You can, you've got the wings and you've got the, uh, the whole proscenium arch as well, and you can control uh, the edges of things. And you can do that with a camera. And when you're a a close-up magician, when you're performing just more in a cabaret or parlour situation, you, you don't have that control. And so that has given me some opportunities that I wouldn't have had. I'm sorry, I forgot your first part of your question as well.
2: Yeah, no, it's just kind of what specific illusions with science do you like to perform for close up and stage and if they differ that much from kind of what you do on camera
0: yes yes sorry so some of the things that i do i would never perform live the advantage is when i'm doing presentations i've got the video that i can put in into a powerpoint presentation however there's things that i have developed that i do live and i've had a lot of fun now that in-person events have started up again to be able to learn how to present them live rather than just on camera so one of the things i've been doing over the last probably four or five years it's been developing and then it suddenly took a, a really steep learning curve this last year is is a version of, of balancing objects so i started off learning i could this is a well-known science stunt where you can balance a can on a, a crazy angle and then i was playing around in a, a school hall one day and realized i could balance the can on the lid of a bottle and then many months later I thought oh, i could balance something on the edge of the can and then it starts becoming a sculpture and at a similar time joshua j put out his trick balance as well and it sort of has a similar sort of look to that uh, now i know for my own version it's all done with uh, science it's all uh, balance points it's all sort of center of mass and so I've been creating fairly elaborate sculptures from household objects and then I've been putting that in front of an audience live and that there's a real element of drama to that partly because I don't know if if it's going to work myself I know I can get it to work on my own without the pressure but can you do it in front of an audience? I, I remember an earlier iteration. I was performing at the magic circle, doing a lecture and I was, I was present presenting that towards the end. And it was really, really hard work. You, some of you would be members. You'd probably be able to track down the video. It took probably three times longer than it would do normally. And things just kept on falling off and it was only afterwards that i realized the reason for this the, the magic circle stage has got quite a rake to it which means it, it tips down quite a bit and so i stood there on stage with a table which i didn't know was tipping towards the audience i was trying to balance stuff and everything was just rolling off and afterwards suddenly looked at the stage and go hang about that's why it didn't balance oh, and then weird. you at that point you make a mental note of going right that's a mistake that's never going to happen again so what can I do to prevent that? And uh, that's that's the beauty of doing live shows is you can learn and you can iterate and you can improve that way. When you just do a one-off video you've got in the can and you don't have that same same learning experience.
1: Do you think, you know, because while filming something, you know, has its advantages it's also got some disadvantages as well obviously I think one of the main ones is spectators can't examine the objects so it also comes with some disadvantages do you think that's a biggest disadvantage or do you think there's a, any other ones um, that you're like okay so how do I get around this
0: I think one of the main advantages is when you're doing live work is it becomes a happening the you and the audience are doing something brand new for the first time and that's something you never get get on video i think uh, whenever you watch something on video there's always that suspicion that things are gimmicked in some way that there's some sneaky editing going on or some camera trickery. And when you see it live, a lot of those, those immediate methods that spring to mind have just been eliminated. I think the disadvantage with live stuff though, is often the distance and often what you can see when it's on video, you can get really close and crisp images and uh, you can frame it nicely and you can then play it back and you can sometimes show it in slow motion as well and so it it's it's, it's a trade off but i think i given the choice i'll definitely go live over over a camera i think there's just so much energy you get from a live performance
2: you're you've kind of you've got the title curator of wonder and I was i was thinking does that Posting videos online, would you say it's less likely that when people are watching it they'll feel that wonder where if you performed magic on stage or close up you'd actually have a higher probability of making someone feel that kind of sense of astonishment?
0: Yeah, so I think I very much see myself in the role when I'm performing live of being side by side with the audience. It's you, you can present in different ways. You can sometimes go, "I've got this amazing sort of trick. Look at this! Isn't and marvel at it." And the performer sometimes gets hidden uh, behind this marvelous trick. Other times, you can have a really strong performance personality that you you obscure obscure the magic and what i try and do in in my shows is here's something amazing let me show it to you and let's explore it together so you're you're not in front of the audience you're not blocking the trick you're there almost sat next to them go let's let's play with it together and so i hope in doing that they they get to have that wonder experience and they also get to see my reaction because i only put stuff in the show that i find fascinating and marvelous myself and and you see i'm not a natural smiler in any ways but you see over the course of an hour show my sort of smile getting bigger and bigger and i get faster and faster and probably my uh, pitch gets higher and higher as well as i talk about these because it's just genuinely interesting to me
2: Yeah, how, how, how have you kind of reali- come to that realization of the way you approach the magic to create the wonder, and how kind of doing it side by side with the audience is more likely to have that sense of wonder.
0: I think I think twofold. I think part of it comes from working in museums. And so they often will teach people who work on the floor to have this sort of that triangle model where you've got the object at the top and the, you've got the audience and the sometimes called the explainer or the enabler or the museum staff sort of at the bottom and you're both looking at it. So it, it partly comes from that world of let's let's explore something together it also comes about f- when i was doing a lot of fringe theater in the early 2000s i performed as a character called johnny facade which was that the shows were very much a mix of uh, magic mentalism and multimedia so it's very much a surreal lecture where i'll be talking about how can you predict the future and i'll use magic tricks to support that claim or i'll be talking about one year I did a show about nothing and just thought, wouldn't it be funny just to talk about nothing for an hour and then that ended up being quite a science show talking about black holes and teleportation and quantum physics and having some tricks there with teleporting an egg from the stage to somewhere else in the, the city centre. And because I had this character that was doing surreal lectures, there was a very... It was almost like a. for those in the UK listening, we've got a character uh, called Alan Partridge, who is this sort of somewhat geeky, somewhat desperate for attention, totally socially unaware character. And the character I performed incredibly badly on stage was a bit like that of geeky, unaware and... And it it wasn't me, and I think the audiences totally saw through this two dimensional character I was trying to portray. And I one year I got a review, which at the time was a I thought was a terrible review. It basically said Matt Pritchard's a nice guy, and I was I hated that because I wanted to be this really edgy, uh, controversial comic who was uh, coming up with these uh, uh, sort of big jokes and stuff like that, and. the 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 reviewer just saw straight through me and said oh he's a nice guy and a few weeks later thought actually that's not a bad thing to actually be seen as quite a nice guy because let's face it most magicians no no that's i'm not going to say most magicians a lot of magicians are complete jerks on stage Uh, they're not likable they're not winsome uh, they embarrass they uh, humiliate the audience And to be seen as a nice guy, uh, a nice magician, I think that started to win me over. And that uh, realised I could be myself on stage rather than trying to be a character. And the more more I was being myself, the more I was putting my own interests into what I was presenting and performing. And there's there's a, a wonderful clown called Avner the Eccentric who... He has this great phrase of be be interested, not interesting. And I think for most of my performing life, I was trying to be interesting, trying to do things that would, hey, look at me, aren't I amazing? And then I realized it was far more productive to be just genuinely interested in something and if you, you if you ever see someone talk or perform something that they're interested in there's there's a new level of uh, performance that goes on when it's it, it becomes genuine and you've got that authenticity as well and i think once i'd realized that once i became comfortable being myself and sharing my own thinking and not not caring so much what other people thought i think that uh, that really helped share the wonder as well
1: yeah absolutely and sort of um, moving on a little you uh, did a TED talk how did that sort of uh, come about
0: so that's initially so this a TEDx Brum and I think like so many speakers at the time you sort of had a dream of doing like those TED talks and, and I just emailed them and said hey can I do a talk and didn't hear anything and then about 6 months later I got an email out of the blue saying hey thanks for your email we get hundreds of people like you saying could you come and do a talk so what we're going to do we're going to do an open audition you've got 60 seconds come along and impress us with your idea if you if we like you we'll put you on stage with the other speakers and performers that we've already chosen so it was a tedx brum is very much a curated event and so they have a theme and they pick people that fit that as opposed to it's just a free-for-all so that was that's scary like you've got 60 seconds to try and impress uh press the judges effectively it's it's very much like an x-factor britain's got talent type of setup and then you think well what could i do in that and 60 seconds is not a long length of time. So I uh, there's a science trick that a friend of mine, Steve Mould, does with beads that come out of a pot. And I thought, oh, I could do that straight away. That would grab their attention because it's always great to first off grab their attention, get them curious. And I was doing it and then realized, right, that's 15 seconds doing just that one thing. And I've, I've now got 45 seconds left so I was rehearsing rehearsing just literally trying to shave seconds off that to get through but I think what probably uh, got me through all the applicants was partly that I basically grabbed their attention first off and secondly it was just a very clear here's what I'm going to talk about and and then sit down but the the whole topic of the the TEDx talk was all about how we often jump from a wow moment to how does it work moment and we we miss out on that middle ground sometimes called the liminal space between and liminal is just like a the end of one chapter to the start of the next chapter that blank space in the middle there's something really interesting that happens between a wow and a how and and can and i think that's where wonder often lives how can we put more of that into our lives
2: It's interesting you say that because I I was performing a trick recently and it was one of these ace cutting routines and you could see that there was utter kind of amazement for maybe like four or five seconds and then it went to, hmm, I wonder how you did that. Would you say that there's any way to, what would you say are the best ways to prolong that sense of wow? Wow and do you think it is there any ways that we can get rid of the how is that done or do you think we don't have to do any of that
0: i think some of it comes down to how how you present it how you frame it how you come across as a performer i think often magicians can set it up very much as a I'm, I'm cleverer than you, uh, aren't I amazing? And as soon as you do that, that can put a lot of people's backs up and they can be going, right, we're going to try and catch the magician out. We're going to try and sort of pull that rug under his feet or her feet. And I think that that comes back to what we we're saying earlier about being next to them and, and sharing the experience rather than trying to just shove it down their throats. So I think when you when you have a whether it's explicitly or implicitly a challenge environment, that can get people thinking, Or oh, how does it work? Uh, I think sometimes magicians can frame a trick as a puzzle as well. And so I go, we'll try and figure this out. And as soon as you say it's a puzzle, try and figure it out, then they're going to try and figure it out. I think with ace cutting routines, especially the first time you get a surprise, don't you? and the second time is you sort of are a bit you're forearmed you know what's going to happen next and when you know what's going to happen next you're going to try and figure it out and it's one of the reasons why in all the the kids magic books it says never repeat a, a trick twice unless you can really sort of fool them the second and third time with perhaps a, perhaps a different way of doing that i think also if you just stop a trick, then they're going to have, as an audience, have time to think about, oh, what has just happened? How did it work? Whereas if you can use the trick as a springboard, either to something new, so they don't have that time to think about it, or you can uh, get them thinking maybe on a higher plane than just the mechanics of the trick. So you often see magicians will try and put some a story or, or bigger meaning into what they're doing and and when you're doing that the the trick supports the the story or the meaning and so that the thinking's about that bigger stuff rather than the the, the trick itself and so those those are maybe a few things to think about moving moving away from the how i have this phrase wow how now where you what's the wow what's the amazing thing how does it work now what could i do with it now i wonder what if and when i'm performing as a magician exclusively i try and minimize that how that middle ground and sort of go wow to now leaving out the the, the how stage mm.
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense and especially uh, all, all of that it's incredible but the first part really does make sense because a lot of people do put themselves almost at a higher rank um because after all we do know more about you know especially the trick than our audience but if we really show that and almost playing on that too much they i feel like instead it instinctively will want to go all right how do i how do i prove that i'm better or i know what they're doing instead of as you said if if you go on the same sort of level as them and then acts almost as part of the audience then they don't feel the need to prove you wrong effectively
0: yeah and i think sometimes we we do those sucker type effects where we come across as almost lower status than our audience of going oh look we're a bit incompetent we've made a mistake and the audience then starts feeling sorry for us and then suddenly we swing it round and go "Ha ha, got you and that that can be some horrible dynamics going on of you're you're really manipulating uh the audience thinking as well and and you can come across again like a real jerk when you sort of do that of, sort of playing playing with the audiences uh, expectations and, and views of who you are
2: what are the best ways to approach those kind of soccer tricks would you just advise against it or are there any approaches where you've got the audience on their your side so then it's more of a you're kind of doing it with them and so it's kind of when you kind of be like ah i've got you it's then they still feel on your side is there any way to do that
0: I think some of the masters of this are jugglers. When you look at an expert juggler who uh, the real... Uh, one of the real challenges you have as a juggler is to make what you're doing seem seem hard. Now, don't get me wrong. Juggling is ridiculously hard and you've got an incredibly high skill set. But to uh, put on a real show, you... You need to come across as being a little bit fallible. You you need to make it seem like you you can drop the balls, and there is the opportunity for things to go horribly wrong. And there is an element of a sucker trick to a juggling routine where you think, oh, is it gone wrong? And then suddenly the uh, the juggler has triumphed. But then uh, when you're in the audience, you're totally on the juggler's side. You want them to succeed. And it's uh, it's never mm. failure is never at the expense of the audience. It's always at the expense of the the performer. And I think that that's one way of one way of viewing things. I think often sucker tricks are at the expense of the volunteer or the audience. And if you can flip it round, and so it's more at the expense of the performer. They're the person who's going to lose out as opposed to the audience. I think we ha- we have such a reputation of treating our spectate- spectators horribly that uh, y- you see people going to magic shows and they always want to sit on the back row because they never want to be picked by a magician. And that's, 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 that's horrible, isn't it, that uh, magicians have that reputation that you're going to be picked on and ridiculed. Uh, it's very rare I get to see magicians have a spectator on stage And the spectator is made to look amazing, made to feel wonderful. And I think the performers who do that well are the successful performers as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great note to end the podcast. Thank you so much Matt for coming on and yeah, we can move on to the quick fire round questions. Great stuff what do you have like a favorite prop to use?
0: I love my sponge carrot. I don't know if I need to support that at all. (laughs) Uh, It's just for a really simple uh, psychology demonstration where I get someone to quickly name a vegetable and suddenly this sponge carrot pops out of my hand and that's a, that's a lovely moment except when the whole audience calls out cucumber and you're there left with a sponge carrot in your hand and you've got no, no out for that.
2: Um, If you could only keep one magic book, what would it be and why?
0: Oh, you, you haven't seen how many magic books I've got. That's a horrible question to ask. I, I think one of the most instrumental can I say The Art of Astonishments volume one, two, and three. Am I allowed a whole volume yeah, set? No,
2: that's fine.
0: I think that as uh that was one of the first sets of books that really got me thinking magic is uh can be wonderful, it can be funny, it can do so much more than just fool people.
1: If you could meet any magician, who would it be and why? Uh, that's past or present.
0: I'm not very good at this rapid fire stuff, am I? I would love to have a chat with Darren Brown. Not so much talking about the magic and mentalism, but I think uh, his uh, his approach, how he fuses drama, how he fuses meaning into his performances is, is world-class.
2: If you could only perform one effect for the rest of your life, what would it be? And I'll, I'll let you pick one of the things that you've recorded as well.
0: So I, as a science trick, I love the, the balancing can stunt. Uh, that's so much fun to do. If I had to choose one magic trick, and I know you didn't let me choose two, but if I choose magic trick, I'll go for the invisible deck. I think uh, the invisible deck, so much power in just 52 cards. It's just a wonderful prop, and I've had some great moments over the years performing with that.
1: If you could do magic, what would you do?
0: I would love to fly... I would love to genuinely sort of levitate and fly around around the room.
2: If you forgot everything you knew about magic, what were, what were those first few steps of trying to relearn it be? And you'd have to, and you don't have to relearn it in any particular way.
0: I think the thing that has taken the longest to learn and the thing that would be really helpful to know from day one is to just have confidence in the magic that you're doing. I think if you really believe in what you're doing, you can take a trick up multiple levels.
1: If you can do anything you're doing right now, what do you think you would be doing?
0: Sorry, I didn't catch all of it. If I could do anything that I'm doing now or could do anything else.
1: Yeah, yeah. so if you couldn't be doing any, anything you're doing now, what would it be?
0: I would, I've always dreamt of being an architect. I'd love to design really impressive, impractical buildings.
2: What's a piece of advice you have for magicians, please?
0: I think so I look back over my life of performing and I would be a so much better performer if I properly rehearsed and didn't just practice in my room.
1: And what does the mystery, the actual mystery behind magic mean to you?
0: I think the mystery is there's so much more there than we think.
1: That's amazing. Thank you so much, Matt, for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. And honestly, yeah, thank, thank you, you so much for sharing everything you, you did. It was so interesting.
0: Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a great chat and some wonderful questions as well that I'd never considered. And probably was sort of a midnight tonight Think, Oh, I could have come up with a better answer.
1: <laughs> I'll
0: probably get the prize for the slowest rapid fire yeah. questions, don't I?
1: <laughs> no, No, I think we've had some longer ones. We, we should time them actually and put them on a scoreboard. That would be a fun idea. <laughs> Thank you so no, much. Oh, it'd be great. <laughs>
0: yeah. Start after I've been on though. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. If you want to find out more about uh, matt his twitter and instagram handle is science magician his website is science magic and words of on wonder.com his TED talk that we mentioned in the episode is also on his website science it's on the first page the landing page and i'll definitely recommend you give it a watch because it's super interesting and sort of links in of what we talked about today Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode and we hope to see you next time.